This is lecture number seven on Deuteronomy by Robert Benoit of Biblical Theological Seminary. Lecture number seven. We were on page three of the outline down through section 2b. We spent most of last week discussing number two, which is the evolution of the treaty form and its implication for the date of the book of Deuteronomy. And under that, we looked at little a and little b of the outline, little a being a closer look at both the Assyrian treaties of Esarhaddon and b the Aramaic treaties, which are from Sephirae, and comparing the structure format of those treaties with the Hittite treaties. I think that's where we stopped after conclusions, after looking at the Aramaic treaties. We didn't discuss little c in the outline, the implications of the treaty covenant. I said in conclusion that Klein does have good reason to talk about the evolution of the treaty form from the period of the Hittites down through Sephiri and then through the Assyrian period. Then that brings us to this other thing with J. Thompson. You are reading Thompson and his InterVarsity Press book in the Tyndale series, pages 51 to 52, and he expresses some reservations about Klein's conclusions. Thompson himself then argues for a date of Deuteronomy that's in the 11th to 10th centuries B.C., which would be the period of Solomon and David. He sees Moses behind the work, but feels editorial processes have brought it to the point where it is in the form that we have it now. So as far as Thompson's book is concerned, he certainly is not advocating the Wellhausian 7th century, 621 B.C. kind of date. It's either David-Solomon time, and substantial parts of it are even mosaic, but the editorial processes involved took place in the time of the United Monarchy. His reservations about Klein's view, I think, are basically two. One is that, in his view, he feels that Deuteronomy could have been put in the shape of the treaty form by someone writing long after Moses' time. That's the bottom paragraph there on page 51. He says, and I quote, The possibility must be allowed that Deuteronomy was cast in the shape of an ancient treaty by someone who wrote long after Moses' day. End quote. Now, in that view, Thompson's basic thesis is not much different than that of a man named Frankena. I believe it's in your bibliography, if you look at page 4 of your bibliography, R. Frankena. And the article by Frankena is The Vassal Treaties of Esarhaddon and the Dating of Deuteronomy. In that article, Frankena argues dependence, particularly of the treaty curses in Deuteronomy chapter 8, to the Assyrian treaty curses, and he feels that that is something that is an argument for the late date of Deuteronomy. It's put in the treaty terminology an expression of late time, Frankena argued that, and also Moshe Weinfield, whom I mentioned last week. That's in Moshe Weinfield's book, Deuteronomy and the Deuteronomic School. He feels that the treaty form of Deuteronomy is to be ascribed to court scribes in the time of Hezekiah and Josiah, so that the form was imposed on the material at a late date. Now, Thompson doesn't go that late down to Hezekiah and Josiah, but in principle, you see, what he's saying is that the possibility has to be open that the shape of the treaty form is given to Deuteronomy by someone living long after the time of Moses. So that's one thing that he says. 
Another thing in opposition to Klein's argument has to do with the historical prologue. Thompson says that the historical prologue argument is not strong. What does the absence of the historical prologue argue? The historical prologue argument is that Assyrian and Aramaic treaties don't have one, and the Hittite treaties do, and that's one of the contrasts. It's not the only contrast, but one of the contrasts, and certainly it's a very important contrast because it affects the tone and the character of the treaty as well as the treaty of the relationship between the suzerain and the vassal. But, Thompson said, that argument's not sound because the Assyrian and Aramaic treaties may either have assumed a prologue or it may have been stated orally. In other words, you don't see it there in the Assyrian and in the Aramaic treaties, but maybe it was just assumed, which is quite an assumption on that part in itself. He says maybe it was stated orally. Maybe there was some oral previous history given before the conclusion of the treaty arrangement. He suggests further that the Aramaic treaties from Sephiri, some of them are broken on top. He says that maybe the historical prologue was there in the broken section that we don't have anymore. So he tries to weaken the historical prologue argument in that way. In addition, he claims evidence of a 7th century text with a historical prologue. In other words, he seeks to turn the argument around. He finds evidence, so he says, of a 7th century treaty text, which would be late, that does have a historical prologue. If you're going to argue, then, on the basis of the evolution of the treaty form that the early treaties had a historical prologue and the late ones don't, then you come up with a late treaty that does have a historical prologue that weakens the argument of the evolution of the treaty form as being conclusive. But those are his basic arguments. See that on top of page 52. He says, and I'm quoting here, But in fact, there is a 7th century B.C. treaty where the historical prologue occurs. And in his footnote, he refers to A.F. Campbell for a historical prologue in the 7th century treaty text published in the journal Biblica. So, in response to those two points of Thompson, first in response to that latter point, that text that he cites is a text that is disputed in itself. Whether that's clear evidence of a historical prologue in the 7th century text that he cites is not so clear. There's another article, it's in your bibliography, and this can get confusing because the article he cites is by A.F. Campbell, but there's an article by E.F. Campbell. If you look on page 4 of your bibliography, they're right under each other. A.F. Campbell is the one he cites, but right under it there's an article by E.F. Campbell called Moses and the Foundations of Israel. E.F. Campbell in that article says, The text in question, the one that is being referred to, is very fragmentary, especially in the beginning, and the reading is far from clear. I haven't seen that text, but it is a disputable text, apparently, as to whether the historical prologue is really there or not. More recently, the article you've been assigned to read is by Kenneth A. Kitchen, which is basically an analysis of a book by Nicholson called God and His People, Covenant and Theology in the Old Testament. In Kitchen's analysis of that, page 132, note 37, he says, and I'm quoting here, 
The works of McCarthy and Weinfield from which Nicholson draws obscure the clear differences between the 14th-13th century treaties in the first example. The former treaties have, while the latters do not have, historical prologues, end quote. So again, you see, it's that contrast. The early treaties have the historical prologue, Kitchen says. The latter ones do not have it. Then he has this footnote, and he says, quote, The supposed space in the Treaty of Ashurbanipal and Kedar is not a prologue. After the now-lost title and witnesses, just one historical allusion occurs used to justify Ashurbanipal's dispositions that follow, end quote. So Kitchen there is also arguing that this appeal that Thompson makes to the occurrence of a historical prologue in a 7th century text is really not a historical prologue. So I'm really not so sure that the point that Thompson makes is based on good foundations. The other basic point that Thompson makes is that someone cast Deuteronomy in the shape of a treaty long after Moses' time. That's, of course, possible. You can't rule something like that out, but it seems to me very unlikely that that's a good explanation for the shape of Deuteronomy. And certainly that doesn't disprove Klein's thesis. It gives you another model, but it certainly doesn't disprove Klein's thesis that says that it should be mosaic because the materials to which it most closely corresponds comes from the mosaic era in the Hittite treaties. I think that remains the strongest argument for Klein, and to say, well, it's been cast in that form by somebody much later, anybody can make assertions like that, but certainly Thompson can't prove that. It seems to me that the weight of the evidence goes in the direction of Klein. Student question. Why would someone make such a hypothesis in the first place? Lenoy, That's exactly the point. I've wondered that myself. It surprises me that he does, because Thompson's generally fairly conservative in his views. I don't know what is the decisive factor for him. There's one other thing that he mentions that I'll come back to in a minute, and that's what he calls a post-mosaic element in Deuteronomy. That may be another factor. But those questions, I think, have been adequately discussed. I don't know why he goes in the direction that he does. It seems to me that the weight of the evidence points to mosaic authorship and not later. So it seems to me these two points, the prologue argument and the possibility that someone cast Deuteronomy in the shape of the treaty form long after Moses' day, really don't give Thompson a very strong case against mosaic origin. Klein comments in his Structure of Biblical Authority, page 10, quote, if it is once recognized that the Deuteronomic treaty must have been produced whole for a particular occasion, the pervasive orientation of the book to the situation of Israel in the Mosaic Age, and especially the central concern of this treaty with, of all things, the dynastic succession of Joshua, is always awkward for advocates of the 7th century origin of the book to be able to support it becomes quite inexplicable for them, end quote. Now, I think he's right on that. If somebody is going to push the treaty later, why such emphasis on the succession of Moses to Joshua? Isn't it appropriate for the time in which it represents itself to have been written in the time of Moses, since we're talking about Joshua succeeding him? Of course, it would be meaningless to concern oneself with Joshua's succession 
of Moses, if indeed it was written later. Now, McConville, you're reading his book, discusses this matter of the treaty form as well. In the conclusion to his entire book, on page 159, he says this, quote, A final word is in place on the treaty form of Deuteronomy. We saw that the linguistic connections between chapters 1 to 11 and 12 to 18, as indeed the formal parallel between chapters 7 and 12, serve to point up the relationship between Yahweh's action on Israel's behalf in chapters 1 through 11 and Israel's response to that activity on the part of Yahweh in chapters 12 to 18. End quote. So chapters 1 to 11 basically form historical material and the basic stipulations, whereas chapters 12 to 18 is Israel's obligation. So what he's saying is, in the first 11 chapters, you have Yahweh's action. Then in chapters 12 to 18, you have Israel's response. And he says, quote, This shows that the discernment of the treaty's form in Deuteronomy is not the matter of identifying the extent of the various constituent parts of the treaty. Rather, the action-response characteristic of the treaty is found to be represented at a deep level in the language of the book. We expressed doubt in an earlier stage of our study whether the recognition of a form more or less equivalent to that of the Hittite treaties was really compatible with the belief necessitated by the Deuteronomistic theory that that form was only arrived at in the latter stages of the book's composition around the time of the exile. We have found a number of reasons to challenge that theory in a fundamental way. It seems to the present author that Deuteronomy studies should in the future pay attention to the implications of treaty form, which clearly have not been exhausted, rather than continue to seek the key to an understanding of the book in a theory, that is JEDP, which cannot survive close scrutiny. End quote. So that's McConville's comments on this whole question. Then just one final quote from Kenneth Kitchen's other article that you are reading called Ancient Orient Deuteronomism and the Old Testament. That's a coin word, by the way, of his, Deuteronomism. And that's in the volume, The New Perspectives on the Old Testament, and that's edited by J. Barton Payne. On page four of that article, Kitchen says, The present writer cannot see any legitimate way of escape from the crystal clear evidence of the correspondence of Deuteronomy with the remarkably stable treaty or covenant form of the 14th, 13th centuries B.C. Two points follow here. First, the basic structure of Deuteronomy and much of the content that gives specific character to that structure must constitute a recognizable literary entity. Second, this is a literary entity not of the 8th or 7th century, but rather around 1200 B.C. at the latest. Those who so choose may wish to claim that this or that individual law or concept appears to be part of later date than the 13th century B.C., but it is no longer methodologically permissible gaily to remove essential features of the covenant from on a mere preconception, especially of 19th century A.D. vintage, of what is merely thought and not proven to be late." End quote. In other words, again, he's challenging the whole Wellhausen idea of analysis of Deuteronomy on the basis of the treaty covenant structure form that we find in the Hittite treaties. 
Now, Thompson's reservations. First of all, he questions, as I've mentioned, this strength of Klein's argument on the Treaty Covenant analogy. But then he also speaks of some other things that make him conclude that the book is not mosaic. And he cites two arguments that have long been used by advocates of the late date for Deuteronomy. Those are first, and this is on page 52, that, quote, passages in the prophets reminiscent of Deuteronomy don't prove that the prophets knew Deuteronomy. It's possible that Deuteronomy was based on the prophets, end quote. In other words, you find certain similarities of language and connection between certain sections of the prophetic books and the book of Deuteronomy. Of course, the argument has often been made that Deuteronomy was first and that the prophets reflect their familiarity with that book. He says those passages don't prove that the prophets knew Deuteronomy. It's possible, he says, that Deuteronomy was based on the prophets. It suggests that prophets were first, then Deuteronomy comes later. Well, again, I think all that's shown by that statement is how difficult of an argument that is to use. To prove priority is difficult, even though with the prophets in Deuteronomy, you often find allusions between two passages where you find similar terminology. Take the passage in Obadiah and the one in Jeremiah 49 about Edom, and that's been argued both ways. Some say Obadiah is dependent on Jeremiah because the language is so similar. Others say Jeremiah is dependent on Obadiah. It's a very hard argument to prove priority one way or the other in any kind of conclusive fashion. So again, I don't know why he says that the argument is not conclusive, for these parallels do not necessarily prove 8th century prophets knew Deuteronomy, either in its developing form or in its final form. I think that's true, but I think that the whole argument is very difficult for one to use in any kind of conclusive way. He's actually saying that if Deuteronomy is in the time of Solomon or David and the United Kingdom, this is pretty prophetic, and he's not arguing against that. He's arguing against those who use this analogy. He's really just showing that this argument is not a conclusive argument. I wouldn't take issue with that. It fits with a mosaic date, but I don't think you can prove a mosaic date that way. In Thompson's large commentary on Jeremiah... That terminology is used in so many different ways. How does he define Deuteronomistic school? I'm not sure. If he is saying there were those around who were influenced by the book of Deuteronomy, who were in turn influenced by Jeremiah and the book of Jeremiah, that's no problem. Which way is the influence going? Did Jeremiah influence the writing of the book of Deuteronomy? In other words, was his preaching that which helped develop this Deuteronomistic school and then produce Deuteronomy? Or is it that Deuteronomy's influence came down through the centuries and helped structure the language of Jeremiah? It seems to me that there is no problem with that if the latter is what is meant. But I'm not certain, and I would hope that this is what he means, that Deuteronomy is prior to Jeremiah and not the other way around. The second thing he says is that there are post-Mosaic additions to the book. This is further down on page 52. He says, and I'm quoting, If a Mosaic authorship is accepted, the question arises as to what place, then, must be allowed to post-Mosaic additions. Some of those who contend for Mosaic authorship place these at a minimum. 
Clearly, the account of the death of Moses in chapter 34 must be post-Mosaic. Some of the geographical expressions in the book are of particular interest from this point of view. Apparently, the land of Canaan is viewed from the side of Palestine. The expression, beyond the Jordan, has often been taken as a post-Mosaic expression because it appears to imply that the speaker is standing in Palestine, looking the other way. He admits then, later on, that the expression, beyond the Jordan, might mean in the region of the Jordan. The expression often lacks definition. I think that's true. I don't think you can make an argument for that geographical expression, beyond the Jordan, in a conclusive kind of way. That this expression must be post-Mosaic. Nor does the account of Moses' death being included in the book of Deuteronomy disturb me. I have no objection to that being appended to the end of the book after Moses' death. The whole book is leading up to that. And to put a final note that says here, yes, he did die, doesn't seem to me to be a major difficulty in accepting the Mosaic origin of the book. That phrase, beyond the Jordan, let's look at it a little closer. It occurs quite a few places, sometimes with reference to the eastern side of the Jordan, in other words, what we know as Transjordan. For example, already in the first chapter, and this is why the thing has been discussed quite a bit, see Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 1, where we read, These are the words which Moses spoke unto all Israel. End quote. The King James says, On this side of the Jordan. In the Hebrew, it's Be'ever Ha'yordan. Now you see, some have translated that, these are the words which Moses spoke unto all Israel beyond the Jordan. Where did he speak the words of the book of Deuteronomy? In the plains of Moab. It says he spoke it beyond the Jordan. Here's the Jordan, and here's the plains of Moab. So it sounds like the viewpoint of the author is over here, on the west side of the Jordan River, from inside Canaan. And you have that used in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 1, and again in chapter 1, verse 5. The King James says, on this side of the Jordan in the land of Moab, but it's the same expression. It's the same expression as Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 41, verse 46, and other places as well. However, to counter that, the same expression, the same Hebrew expression, Be'ever ha'yordan, occurs in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 20, of the western side. See chapter 3, verse 20, and it reads, Until the Lord has given rest unto your brethren, as well as unto you, and until they also possess the land which the Lord your God has given them, the ever ha Yordan, beyond the Jordan. And then shall he return every man to his possession, which I have given you. And that's again chapter 3, verse 20 of Deuteronomy. Now, that's speaking of the land given to the two and a half tribes that were going to stay on the east. But it's talking about those going to the west and beyond the Jordan. There is the other way. That's Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 20. In verse 25, it says, Let me go over and see the land that is beyond the Jordan, that goodly mountain and Lebanon. Clearly, that's speaking of the western side from the standpoint of the plains of Moab. But then, what makes this even more confusing, this expression, beyond the Jordan, Hebrew be'ever ha'yordan, let's look at chapter 3. And you see, that's why I'm not even certain why 
Thompson uses these arguments or why he says the expression is often lacking in definition and it's a very hard thing to pinpoint. What is even more interesting is it's used 24 times in the Old Testament, this expression, with a qualifying clause, such as towards the sea, which would mean the west, or towards the sunrise, beyond the Jordan, towards the sunrise, which clearly would mean the eastern side. In other words, those qualifying clauses added to it indicate that the phrase in and of itself is not decisive with respect to what side of the Jordan is being spoken of by the speaker. It seems like it's rather ambiguous. It seems like you just have to translate it depending on the context. Like in chapter 3, it's clear that one reference is referring to one side and the other reference is referring to the other, and you can't then base much on the standpoint that the writer from looking at that expression in and of itself. It seems that is simply a phrase that is in reference to the Jordan, but the phrase can be used in either form to refer to both sides, generally meaning in the region of the Jordan. It's almost like trans-Jordan, but applying it to this side or that side depending on the context. It doesn't seem like it's a particular place. It seems like it's referring to a region, either one side of the Jordan or the region on the other side of the Jordan. Why is it that Thompson is arguing against Mosaic date? I'm not too sure, because I don't think he's arguing against the treaty form or the bringing up of the death of Moses and this kind of expression. These things have been discussed for a long time and are not conclusive, but in any case, he is arguing against Mosaic authority of the book of Deuteronomy. Well, I don't think Thompson's case is convincing, and as far as I'm concerned, the Treaty Covenant analogy remains a forceful new argument for the Mosaic date of origin. I don't think it's proof. I don't think you can talk in terms of proof, but I think it gives a forceful new argument that wasn't around 20 to 25 years ago for Mosaic authorship. The interesting thing is, and you all can pick this up from reading Kitchen, Nicholson has now come along just recently in 1986 and denied the analogy altogether. That's the thesis of his book, and there isn't any analogy between the treaty form and the covenant form. Now, you will read Kitchen's review of Nicholson, so I don't want to get into this in too much detail at this point. But he's questioned not just the date in which Deuteronomy acquired the treaty form, which Frank and I and Weinfield and Thompson seem to do, but he questions the treaty covenant analogy in and of itself. He rejects it and wants to go back to the typical Wellhausen thing. So it's interesting. Anywhere you get the idea of covenant in Israel before the assumed late date of Deuteronomy, he assumes it is retrojected back into earlier times. The idea of covenant treaty itself did not exist earlier. That, however, flies in the face of all evidence. It's interesting that scholars can do with arguments like that because it seems to me that Treaty Covenant is the most irrefutable part of the argument. Kitchen makes that very clear. He has a good response. Apparently, this is his initial response, and Kitchen is going to elaborate on it more and get into it more thoroughly later. George Mendenhall, in 1954, in an article in the Biblical Archaeologist, drew the first attention to this parallel between the Hittite treaties and the Biblical Covenant. That's part of Weinfield's argument, in a sense. 
If you go to some of the treaty curses, for example, Frank and I will cite from the Esarhaddon treaties some of the curses and show how close they are to the curses that we read about in Deuteronomy. Now, if you have the Hittite treaties way back there in the 1200s and the Assyrian treaties up here, let's say around the 700s, and then you find an Assyrian treaty parallel to Deuteronomy, Weinfield and Frankena argue that Deuteronomy borrowed from the Assyrian treaty because the wording of curses is so close. Klein's counter to that is the formulation of things like curses. Kitchen does the same thing. Formulations of things like curses become so stereotyped as types of expressions that the formulation can continue on for centuries. So it's certainly possible that Deuteronomy can be formulated back in the 1200s and have a formulation of a curse to something that you would find in an Assyrian treaty 700 years later because of continuity in the stereotype expressions that you find in things like this concerning curses. Kitchen illustrates that example in the Egyptian period where you see the same kind of phraseology demonstratively in texts that are centuries apart in time. But you see, what you're talking about here is not the whole structure of the thing. What you're talking about are isolated elements within the structure where there might be similarity, and it's true. They did find similarities, but the parallel in structure is early. The blessings and curses are part of the structure, but it's only one unit of the structure. I don't think you want to push these things too far, forcing it, I mean, what you have in Deuteronomy compared to the Hittite Treaty. You've got both similarities and differences. The basic outline and structure of it you find, but besides that, you can get into a whole definition of how you define those elements. There's a sense in which you can say that the whole covenant relationship itself and the covenant form is a form of an oath. What is a covenant? It's an elaborate form of an oath. There are sanctions involved. So in a sense, the whole thing is an elaborate form of an oath. Israel repeatedly says at Sinai, yes, the Lord has said to us, and that's an oath, where they accept the covenant. They do it that again in Joshua chapter 1, verse 4. So I think you can find the oath early. Covenant and oath are almost synonymous. Kitchen's Review says Nicholson ignores all the evidence from other covenants because the term is used in other literatures very early on, and Nicholson ignores this. The use of the term Moses may not refer specifically to the authorship, but may refer to the Pentateuch as a whole from Moses. The other two titles used as the analogies, that doesn't suggest anything about authorship or responsibility for the material, but when it says Moses, it seems to me that they're assigning responsibility to an individual by that name. I would say the evidence really does go against what Thompson was suggesting, that the servant Moses spoke certain words, and also that he wrote certain words, but it's extremely difficult to decide what words Moses recorded in Deuteronomy are his, and whether they are the record of Moses' words through the process of transmission. Well, I think this is a good place to take a break. That was lecture number seven by Robert Benoit on the book of Deuteronomy.